Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. It's your very, very naked, just with tiny bandages around. I like I'm trying to do the thing. It's like Bjorkian. I'm Mila Jojovich as Lilo, and I'm also a wizard, and my name is Holden McNeely. I know there's a lot going on right now, and if this is the first time you're hearing this show, that made no sense. Jake? Don't worry, Holden. I'll do something nice and accessible for the new listeners. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mr. Shadow. I'm a big flaming testicle. Grr, why, why I'm a big testicle in space. Ooh, I'm big. I'm Mr. Shadow, but I'm going to kill everything. Kind of. I don't somehow. Mm, I'm mad. You're bleeding out of your forehead. Ooh, I'm Mr. Sh- I'm the bad guy of this movie. Ooh, I'm a big ball. I'm a big ball. Boo. There's there's the <laughs> there's Zorg. There's Bruce Willis's character. There, there's so many, there's, there's, uh, Chris Tucker's character. The core conflict of this movie is (laughs) magic Bjork woman versus the angry space (laughs) testicle. And it's weird that you're complicating it with all these minor characters. Oh my God. Um, please, Jake, uh, away from me now. It's the fifth element, folks. It's, (laughs) we're talking about. The European sci-fi movie of two th- of 1997 with a amazing uh, a number 26 in the box office for that year. <laughs> uh, fuck you, Titanic. Fuck you, Men in Black. Fuck you, uh, The Lost World Jurassic Park. Fuck you, Star Wars Special Edition. Fuck you, Face Off. Fuck you, Batman and Robin. Fuck you, Scream 2. We're talking today about The Fifth Element. I feel like we've covered like all of those things that you just talked about. Fuck before you, Anaconda. Fuck you, Dante's Peak. All these movies did a lot better. <laughs> I loved Anaconda. Life. But either way, yes, The Fifth Element, it was that movie that was just always on in the afternoon on HBO. And I would always just watch weird parts of it and try to piece together what the plot was. And I don't think I actually sat down and watched the entire full movie until like a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, because I did one of those movie minute podcasts where they did a minute of uh, every episode, which I think is a weird lane for podcasts, but whatever, I guess people enjoy that sort of thing if they just really love the movie. So I sat down and talked with a couple people about The Fifth Element weirdly for like one minute out of The Fifth Element. For What like, was your one minute? I'm very curious. 
Uh, what was my one minute? I don't even remember. It was such a weird. It's such a weird thing to do. It's such a bizarre dissection of a film to be like, here's here's just sixty seconds of a film, and we're just gonna pick it apart for far too long. But either way, I think in preparation for that, I sat down and actually watched the whole thing. I was like, oh shit, Luke Perry's in this movie, <laughs> and other <laughs> other observations and things that I completely missed because honestly, I think I always ended up catching this movie at completely random points in it and had no idea what the fuck was going on ever. And yeah. so it was very fun to sit down and watch the whole thing. It's just as insane as, as it was back when I just watched random chunks of it. I am like, this is not like necessarily like Holden's favorite thing, but I, it's a Marvel to me. It's just so fascinating to me. And I just love that it exists and what it did for filmmaking and really like watching or not what it did for filmmaking, but what, what it did for the, maybe the genre of sci-fi for sure. And uh, just what it was at that time, because now that I'm looking back on it, now that I've done some research on it, it really appears like there's just 0% chance this movie would be made in Hollywood today. Uh, I mean, it would have been made in Hollywood today if it wasn't for the fact that Luke Besson's spiritual follow-up, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, yes. tripped on its own testicles and fell down the stairs. Um, yeah, I, I never saw Valerian. Valerian, by the way, will tie into some of the history of French sci-fi that we're going to talk about as well, as that really is, you know, that was created by Mobius, who really is all no, to thank for the Valerian those. was uh, the other guy, the other another guy? French guy named Jean. Oh, okay. Uh, Jean-Paul Mezier, I want to say. Oh, okay, Mezier, yeah, yeah. And so... But either way, like the the just the, the those comic creators in France created these cityscape looks that we now get in films like Blade Runner, but way more so in, like in Fifth Element. And Fifth Element also finally broke free from the chains of dark and gritty sci-fi. And I like dark and gritty sci-fi just like the next guy. It's funny that it came out the same year as The Matrix, which cemented dark, gritty sci-fi. But uh, it was nice to see some color and some fun, and some comedy. I think the stuff that was weird for me back then, and even still now, I'm not, like, I don't love, like, sexy shows and, like, <laughs> sexy movies. And there was a lot of, like, weird, sexy... It's very French. And and, <laughs> and I think that was kind of hard for me, harder for me to digest back then. I'm a little bit more open to that kind of uh, stuff today. But back in the day, I was like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> Since I first watched this movie... I've since, like, uh, actually read European comics, mm. you know, 2000 AD, Judge yeah. Dredd, uh, Heavy Metal, uh, a lot of Jodorowsky-like uh, comics. And so now I'm in its rhythm, I'm in its pattern, and watching it again for the first time in years for this episode, the weirdness of the movie, like, I now have the context to know what they were going for. Yeah, I think that's it. It's like I have much more of a deeper pr appreciation for the costumes, knowing that they were created by... Um, oh, God. Uh, uh, Gautier. Gautier. And, uh, you know, much more of an appreciation for, yeah, knowing knowing the basis uh, of with Mobius and everything. And, and even, uh, you know, we just talked earlier about that connection to Jodorowsky's Dune that never happened. And, and uh, yeah, definitely. all and, and also just I'm good on, you know, I think back in the day when I was younger, you know, when you're a kid, especially like a, a, a boy like nerd boy I think all you want to see is like Star Wars-y gunfights and all that and I think watching Fidelma I was like where are all the battle scenes where's all the action there was some action but even some of the big fight scenes are during like this weird operatic sequence you know what yeah. I mean so so like everything's just so and you've got Chris Tucker like screaming in this like <laughs> high-pitched voice 
Like, there's just so much crazy batshit banana stuff going on that that it was like, well, this isn't the by the rails blockbuster thing that I'm used to. And therefore, I don't know if I like it, but I do think I like it now. This movie, unlike I feel other uh, action movies, a lot of things on the uh, top list, uh, domestic top list, you know, has kind of fallen off the wayside. Uh, Face Off is now kind of considered this trashy, campy thing. Batman and Robin has been like mocked left and right. Uh, even like, yeah, the Lost World Jurassic Park, all these movies that were quote unquote better for the American audience have kind of like not held up as well. Whereas The Fifth Element has this long tail and so many things that have now aged incredibly well. Uh, like Chris Tucker as Ruby Rhodes. Like, in the beginning, you know, you're just like, what is this, uh, you know, aggressively pansexual, loud, uh, like, guy doing in this kind of uh, movie? But nowadays, that his entire, like, aura fits perfectly with, like, YouTubers and TikTok people yes. and, like, po- and to a certain extent, podcasters. In- influencers, yes. Influencers. He's, He's the influencer. ultimate extravagant influencer. To the point where his character makes way more sense now than yeah. it did back then. A hundred percent. Although I will say agree to disagree about Face Off. Face Off has aged like a delicious fine wine. Um, there's also one of the things that really stuck out to me is the effects in this movie are so good to the because this was like one of the last gasps for like big practical effects spectacles. Yeah. Uh, and to the point where there is CG in this movie, but it sticks out like a sore thumb because it was... It was uh, this combination of, like, the clumsy early days of CG and the absolute, complete apex of practical sci-fi effects. It's also two green screen shots only, just to give you an idea of how much practical stuff they went with in this whole thing. I mean, that that is, uh, that's pretty spectacular. And you really do get that. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of what I enjoyed about the Hitchhiker's Guide film with the different aliens and monsters um, being much more practically made with more puppetry and costuming and stuff. And I think that that really goes a long way. I mean, it always does. It's this tale as old as time, man. It's just so much better when it's, uh, when it's more practical. Looking at you, Mando. So this movie has a unique aesthetic, uh, just incredible costumes. It's lit and shot. Unlike any other big sci-fi movie, the imagery just sticks in people's heads so much that, like, so many things about this movie has become iconic. Uh, the Zorg ZF-1, um, the, the, you know, the crazy gun that Gary Oldman yeah, has. Yeah, uh, Gary Oldman's accent. <laughs> all of Mila Jojovich's scenes. <laughs> I, feel like the, I feel like the ultimate in cosplay has kind of become that bandage costume. You know what I mean? That's I like mean, the final frontier. If you can pull it off. If you can pull it off. Uh, in interviews, uh, Mila Jojovich is like... Listen, if you got someone to like lovingly film yourself at the absolute apex of your physical beauty, you'll look back on it and be like, damn, I was hot. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. There's just it's it's a fascinating film and it's all over the place, man. To pacing wise and everything, it's it's so gleefully all over the place. And I think it I think you can see the dare I say love that was put into this film. Because it really it really does shine through. And, and I loved hearing that. And I have some quotes and anecdotes about about this, but how everyone seemed to enjoy themselves on this film. They worked really hard and they had a great time together. And, you know, just it seems like it was just like a a passion piece. Absolutely. So here we go. Let's get into it. 
the history of the fifth element, I will just start by saying, uh, as a summary, this is a English language French sci-fi action film directed and co-written by Luc Besson and stars Bruce Willis, Gary Oldman, and Mila Jovovich. Set in the 23rd century, the film revolves around a taxi driver named Corbin Dallas, who, after a young woman falls into his cab, must join forces with her to recover four mystical stones, essential for the defense of Earth against an attack from a malevolent entity, the space ball that Jake mentioned earlier. Uh, His name is Mr. Shadow. I don't understand why it's so hard to understand that this evil space ball also can make phone calls. And is named Mr. Shadow. So one of the cool things about this film, I think, is just that it, it really came from this one guy, Luc Besson. And and it, it started early on in his life. Besson, Besson was born in Paris to two scuba diving instructor parents. And he himself wanted to become a marine biologist as a kid while also traveling with his parents a lot. And at the age of 10, his family returns to France from uh, traveling abroad a ton they then promptly get divorced and remarried which had a profound effect on him Bassan said there here there is two families and i am the only bad souvenir of something that doesn't work and if i disappear then everything is perfect the rage to exist comes from here i have to do something otherwise i'm going to die so definitely whoa just- whoa whoa holden you're telling me that this single child of a divorced family that also had to move around a lot in his early childhood Built an incredibly rich inner life and felt incredibly <laughs> alone. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course that uh, always this we see this with these t- types of auteurs and creators of of yeah. Now he's got to kind of create his own inner world because his outer outer world is kind of shitty, and uh, so he's going to escape in that. And even at the age of sixteen, he said, "At sixteen, I wrote three stories. I wrote two hundred pages, and it was bad. I wrote two hundred more. It was still bad." So I throw it away and I try again. You have to understand, at the time, I'm living 60 kilometers from Paris, almost in the middle of a forest with a stepdad who doesn't want music, TV, nothing. So I'm very isolated. And basically, you have three solutions. The first is you become alcoholic. The second one is you kill yourself. And the third one is you escape with your pen. Fifth element was the perfect escape. So so this story is being crafted in his teens. So, uh... Weirdly enough, this in this initial version of the story, it's about a spacefaring cab driver uh, named not Dal- Dallas Corbin, but Zaltman G. Blaros. Yep. Which actually, uh, the only reference to this, uh, to Zaltman Blaros is a prop multipass that is used in the background of other scenes that actually has the name on it. That is just kind of held by a bunch of different characters. You can actually buy the Zaltman Blaros multipass from one of those like uh, movie prop auction houses as we speak. Um, if you are a rich weirdo and want to just buy that for me, please do so. Jake, uh, I am a rich weirdo. I would like to purchase that from you. Thank you. Thank you, rich weirdo. <laughs> I owe well, you my life and all the other things that come with a rich weirdo as a patron. Well, off to jerk off to some weird stuff. <laughs> See you course, later. As is your right, rich weirdo. Uh, <laughs> and it should be noted that if you are French, if you are a alienated teen and you just need to escape, the and you have a weird stepdad that doesn't like loud noises, the focal point for all of these, um, for your escapism, is going to be comic books. And around the 80s and 70s, when Besson is 
and his prime and actually forming all these ideas that'll get put into Fifth Element, this is prime time for French science fiction comics. There is Pilot Pilot Magazine, which features um, the comic series Valerian and Loreline, which has this incredibly like groovy kind of swinging element, unlike kind of uh, Buck Rogers or any of these other kind of sci-fi uh, standards that we're used to. Valerian is sexy. Uh, the main character is kind of a himbo. Uh, it's his like cute like um, girlfriend that is like the brains behind the operation, and he can travel through space and time and alternate dimensions, and goes on these incredibly weird adventures in different areas. And he, the whole idea is Valerian is a lunkhead. He does not take anything that's happening seriously. It is more of a comedy series than like an honest to God dramatic action series. And that kind of uh, paradigm is felt in a lot of French science fiction. Another big thing that was happening in the 80s in French sci-fi comics was Metal Herlunt, Howling Metal, or as it was published in America, Heavy Metal Magazine, which again features all these independent artists who are pushing these horny as hell, elaborately illustrated, violent comics that all have this insanely irreverent tone. The idea of like this optimistic future, this like clean and um, shining science fiction is just not what French sci-fi is about, especially in these comic artists. A lot of people would say that France, having gotten uh, the raw end of the deal in World Wars One and Two, kind of isn't hopeful about the future. They don't actually think technology will save us. If anything, the modern world is just going to be shittier and weirder and just like the present. And so, like, a lot of the things that makes The Fifth Element this weirdly atonal thing that does not fit into standard American sci-fi movies is the influence from these comic creators to the point where when Besson is getting some heat, uh, he just goes ahead and hires uh, artists like the creator of Valerian and Loreline, um, Jean-Claude Mezier, and one of the main artists from Heavy Metal magazine, Jean Girard, a.k.a. Mobius, whose name has come up a ton of times before because he's worked mm -hmm. on the Alien franchise. He was like this insanely influential artist to the point... He, he Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki. Yeah, yeah, Miyazaki. I think we talked about it. I, I, yeah, multiple times he's come up in our previous episodes because he's he is just so influential in terms of any kind of animated sci-fi, uh, anything from back in this time. And also you see this disenfranchisement in anime as well with stuff like Akira, which definitely pulled from the works of these French comic creators as well in terms of their cityscape designs this is we're talking about those elaborate cityscapes with just signs and floating cars and stuff just everywhere and there's like no bottom to it and uh yeah that all those like layers of stuff hell i'm even experiencing it playing cyberpunk right now i mean it's the same kind of situation of like it's like oh this this city goes up and up and up and there's no like end and there's no beginning yeah also uh, being published at the time is a comic series written by, uh, is it Alejandro Jodorowsky? Uh, yeah, you can say that. And I saw Jodorowsky as well. Because Jodorowsky. Yeah, from... Alejandro yeah. Jodorowsky and John Gerard Mobius called The Inkle, which is so spiritually similar to The Fifth Element. Uh, it involves these all-powerful stones that are being pursued by, like, dark forces the Inkle begins with this insane, like, uh, free fall 
in this mega city version of like New York that looks exactly like Lilu's descent in the movie. Um, in the main character is very Corbin Dallasy. He's this gruff kind of private detective who's working class and has to navigate all these eccentric and extravagant higher classes uh, in the future who really just wants to like get home and like just kind of slack off and is kind of thrust into this kind of uh, overarching cosmic plot. So Bessan is kind of just absorbing all of this and kind of interpreting it like any 16 year old with the media that he's consuming to escape. And there's no, there's no career goal in mind. This is just a bored kid bored out of his mind, creating stories. But that all changes at the age of 17 when he has a diving accident that leaves him unable to dive anymore. Now is really his other, his side gig essentially, or his other main pursuit. He then does something I wish I had had the foresight to do back at the age of 17. And and he sits down with a piece of paper and he writes, uh, he draws a line down the middle and he writes on the left side, everything he, uh, he could do. And on the right side, everything he couldn't do. And he said, I could see that I loved writing. I loved images. I was taking a lot of pictures. So I thought maybe movies would be good. But I thought that to really know, I should go to a set. And a friend of mine knew a guy whose brother was a third assistant on a short film. So I said, okay, let's go on the set. So I went on the set. The day after I went back to see my mom and told her that I was going to make films and stop school and buy. And I did it. Very soon after, I made a short film. And it was very, very bad. I wanted to prove that I could do something, so I made a short film. That was, in fact, my main concern, to be able to show that I could do one. Which, I mean, I remember that moment in my life when... I was watching a lot of Mr. Show and I was obsessed with kids in the hall and I was in college and I had just had a similar experience where I got kicked out of the acting program. And I'm stop me if you've heard this one before, listeners. But either way, if it's a drinking game, take a drink right now. But either way, you know, there was that moment where I was like, wait, can I just like do a sketch show? That seems (laughs) crazy. And then I just co-wrote with a group of people and put on a sketch show and it was like magic. And uh, so and it was also probably very, very bad. I'm going to go ahead and say it definitely was very, very bad. Uh, But either way, it was it was a game changer. And I think it's an important thing to do. And I think even if you're 40, uh, you could do the same thing with a sheet of paper that uh, he did at the age of 17. It's never too late. So he becomes known uh, after this as a major figure in the cinema du look movement in France. And this is happening in the eighties, which sounds cool as hell. But at the time the label was an insult because of the, uh, movements, uh, focus on visual style and cool shots. Yeah. It was style over substance, but I mean, we're talking classic films. If you don't know, Luc Besson did La Femme Nikita, He did one of my favorite action movies of all time, Leon the Professional. Uh, Before that, uh, he also did Subway before that, Le Grand Bleu. And yeah, there was also a lot for the first time of mixing high culture with pop culture. And I think, and we're going to talk about the opera scene later. That's the best example of that in this film, I think, almost, right? Where you've got this classic opera and opera singer, and then it jumps into this like kind of hip-hoppy, weird thing, like electronica thing, right? And that's that's like that's a lot of what this movement was trying to do, like meld this stuff and maybe kind of like, I don't know, on purpose, like cheapen it to 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 show it in a new light or or maybe cheapens not the word, but just throw it together with something that snooty people would turn their noses up at. And I think he had a lot of fun at making people turn their noses up. Uh, I just want to point out this one dumb fact, which is that another of his uh, peers in the cinema do look 
movement was a guy named um, Jean-Jacques Benier, who uh, made a movie that gained a lot of notoriety in France called uh, Betty A. Izorg, <laughs> uh, which involved this like troubled couple that had to like deal with, uh, you know, navigating French society and the uh, and when they didn't fit in. Uh, but the one of the main characters' name is Zorg, and that's where that's where the evil character Zorg's name comes from. So that was just a weird shout out to his his fellow Enfant Terrible. Enfant Terrible. Well, that's the first time we've said that phrase too, and that was also uh, what I love about uh, him and um, uh, Gautier is Gautier was described as an enfant terrible, which is why I think it was so great that they pulled him in. And we'll talk more about him later when we get to the costumes. But I think that's why Besson wanted to pull him in, is in the fashion world, that's what he was known as, too, this rebel, this person trying to make things splashy, trying to offend when he could, you know? And I think that's why they were really got along so great for this, and and especially within French culture at the time. The phrase enfant terrible, uh, which now kind of just refers to any like uh, misbehaving kid or like rebel, uh, referred specifically to a phenomenon at the time when the term was coined, where uh, if a kid kind of just spilled the beans on your terrible home life in public while other people were around, <laughs> that was that was the phenomenon that like kids didn't know when to shut up in pu- in uh, in public. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. So here we have a favorite fact corner. Hi, everybody. I'm Holden, and this is the favorite fact corner. I think one of my favorite facts about this was that the uh, the other co-writer of The Fifth Element was Robert Mark Kamen. And Kamen grew up in the Bronx. And when he was 17, he was beaten up by a gang of bullies, which led him to study martial arts. However, he did not love his first teacher, who used martial arts as a tool for violence and revenge. So he ended up training under a much more peaceful teacher who did not speak much English and uh, really g- gained this like amazing wealth of knowledge and skill from him. Does this story sound familiar? Yeah, that's because this is definitely the story of the Karate Kid, which he just adapted <laughs> into a screenplay and created that entire franchise. This dude is franchise gold, in fact. Because uh, before before that, he co-wrote the film Taps. That was one of his first ones. But then Lethal Weapon 3, Under Siege, The Fugitive. And, of course, he teams up with uh, Besson for The Fifth Element. And also, they create the Transporter franchise together, as well as the Taken films after that. And this, I believe, is their first collaboration. But what an interesting guy 
that ends like what a weird wild card for me. I had no idea this guy was involved and I had no idea his real life story is the story of the Karate Kid. <laughs> it just blows my mind. The Karate Kid is even a real thing. I'm watching Cobra Kai season three right now, like probably a lot of people, because if you're listening to this, the time of its recording around the time of its recording, it's the second of January 2021 and the third season just dropped. And I just cannot stop getting a kick out of like people talking about like there's a gang of karate people <laughs> destroying our high school. And it's just very funny that it's a real story. But anyways, going back to the script, it was originally 400 pages, which is insane. I feel like a normal film script is like 90 to 120 pages, something like that. This is 400 well, it was pages. supposed to be more than one movie initially, yes, which so makes a lot movies. of sense uh, because I feel like the movie kind of, it has this grand kind of like uh, get you know the idea of the fifth element and like gathering all the stones lends itself to like a multi chapter kind of journey where they have to you know get each stone and each one is a different adventure and they get to travel to all these different worlds but it definitely coalesced into a single story. A lot of that was issues with budget and things like that. We'll get to its kind of start stop on development in just a little bit, but. Yeah, it just became, like, out of hand for a reasonable film to be made. It's already, like, this rebellious, crazy movie, so it it would be pretty difficult to sell them on multiple movies. But also, um, Bruce Willis's character, who, as we mentioned before, was named Zaltman Blaros, he meets Lilo after winning the trip to the Club Med-style resort. He was not a taxi driver. He worked at a rocket ship factory. And, uh, yeah, there was all these little details just completely different. And uh, this is when he brings in those comics creators. And I think based off their designs and those shitty cityscapes, he realized like, oh, maybe we should make him a taxi driver in this like everyday Joe in this futuristic city and uh, go go more in that direction. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. After Nikita hit big and the international market, Bassan had his eyes set on his big swing being the fifth element and to kind of realize that reality, he just hired all of these artists that like inspired him to create this universe in the first place. Uh, Mobius, uh, Jean-Claude Messier, along with a bunch of other like who's who of uh, French sci-fi artists, just pumping out sketches uh, page after page after page after page. You can tell like which ones are which. Cause like uh, you know, the New York cityscape definitely screams Mobius uh, the Mondashawin, like little beehive spaceship, is a very techno organic Mobius style design. Also, if you'd like to see the exact influence on what made Bruce Willis's character into a taxi driver, check out Messier's book called The Circles of Power. That had a character driving a flying taxi cab, which made uh, Besson go, hey, maybe we should do that. Um, so, like, he just had all of these superstars on retainer and he would just sort through the sketches and be like, nah, nah, nah. Oh yeah. This is in the movie. We are definitely putting this in the movie. Nah, nah, nah. Just for at least like for months on end. Um, imagine I had said that with a French accent. They created over 8,000 drawings while Besson was putting together the cast, which we'll talk about in just a second. Unfortunately, he is unable to find a film studio that would take on the project with its $100 million budget. So uh, production stops in 1992. And then he goes and makes a very convincing film to say, hey, I can do this movie. And that film is, as previously mentioned, Leon the Professional, which also stars Gary Oldman. And it's an amazing character. And uh, more on Oldman later. But either way, that's released in 1994. It's commercially successful. And during this time, 
He shortens the script. Also in the intervening years, he married a 16-year-old that he had impregnated. Yes, which is fun. And we'll talk, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's, he's, he's, uh, you know, things were different back then. No, I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't know what to say it's, about that. But. It, it, which, okay, it's, uh, the actress was Maywen Lebesco, who is actually the woman in the diva, uh, prosthetics during the big opera scene. Uh, he had divorced uh, Anne Perillaud, who was the star of La Femme Nikita, mm. and uh, he met Maiwen when she was 15. I'm like, even by back then, which is just 1992, by 1992, even by French standards, this is fucked up. <laughs> but uh, he made an uh, honest teenager out of her, I guess. Uh, but either but way. He, oh, and that, that relationship between an older man and a younger girl uh, inspired Leon the Professional, which really adds an extra layer of grossness to of that grossness movie. Of grossness to that movie, but I do love that movie. But either way, uh, during this time, he shortens the script and reworks it so the budget could go down to $90 million and also got Columbia Pictures, who did The the Professional, to produce the film, I think, after the convincing uh, fantasticness that is Leon the Professional. So all while this is all going on, the casting process is happening as well. So Besson, looking for a star, of course, for his film, uh, he did not pursue Bruce Willis. No, he pursued America's favorite Australian. Who? You know, America's favorite Australian. Who? Mel Gibson. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I forgot Mel Gibson was Australian. I just remember the anti-Semite part of his personality. But either way. Yeah, Australians. Every one of them. (laughs) Well, either way. um, So, yeah, he's he's. Well, Bruce Willis far too expensive at the time. However, and I've heard this a couple different ways, but I'm going to go with this story. Besson later has lunch with Demi Moore, who, of course, was Bruce Willis's wife at the time. And Bruce Willis shows up and Besson's talking about this film. And Willis says, um, why not me? And essentially says, if I like it, we will make an arrangement. And I'll I'll do it for less money. Bruce Willis grew up in a blue-collar household and had a stutter in his childhood, which has helped largely via the drama club and performing and acting. Uh, After high school, he was a security guard for a time and later a private investigator before he finally turned to acting and college training. However, he left school early. He moves to NYC where he worked as a bartender and pursues acting work. He was mostly known for television work at first until he got the totally unexpected success with the film Die Hard, which propelled him to action movie leading man status very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, he, he, he's kind of this amazing linchpin for uh, Besson that came out of nowhere and was greatly helpful. And with that star power, I think also made it more convincing for him to get this movie made. And it's, then there's uh, it's also such a good casting choice because the protagonist in a ton of these sci fi stories in, from France are these kind of like beleaguered everyman who's like just kind of exasperated with the proceedings more so than like actually wanting to step up to like any kind of heroic ideal. Yeah. Almost like Uh, an anti-hero kind of thing. I know that's the uh, Valerian. Literally the main character of the Inkle is a guy named John DeFool, who is just pretty much John McClane in space France. (laughs) It's the, that kind of just like, just already sick of it before the adventure has even begun attitude. Bruce Willis embodies perfectly. Uh, Besson for the part of Lilo, Lilu, ugh, 
Lilu just sounds like make up I a wanna name. I want to say Lila so bad <laughs> because of Futurama. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for, for Lilu, he saw thousands of models and actresses. And according to co-producer, e, uh, according to co-producer Ian Smith, I'm sure it was like more like a few hundred. I, I think thousands might be a little much. But either way, his first meeting with Mila Jovovich actually, according to him, was a little off. She was nervous. She was, in his opinion, quote, overly made up. So he was not convinced. He, he he later saw her again in L.A. randomly at the Chateau Marmont. She was chilling by the pool. No makeup, jeans and a T-shirt. He says, let's have a meeting like today, like in just a little bit. D- purposely didn't give her time to like go get fancy. Jovovich said, so really I went. get her off her out of her comfort zone. Really yes. just make sure she's nice and vulnerable and not ready <laughs> for this. So that uh, at the age of 18 or 19. Yeah. Would it help you remember the character's name if I gave you her official full name, according to the script? Uh, sure. Yeah. Jovovich said, so I went and saw him later and he put me on tape again. He had me do some really crazy stuff like dancing with no rhythm, singing, speaking in gibberish. I didn't understand any of it, but I was game. Besson said she was perfect. I was so seduced by the test that she did. And all this, there's all this talk about how he was like, in order to find the perfect Lilu, I'm, I must fall in love with her. And <laughs> more on that later. But yeah, he's clearly moving on to his next, uh, his next lady here with uh, the casting of Mila Jovovich, a very, very young. And then there uh, is... Gary Oldman's involvement is much less whimsical and fancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Oldman was more of a trade. Oldman, it, it, he was making his own movie at the time, and Besson was helping him with that. And he said, hey, I'll help you with your movie if you'll come over here and do some of my movie as well as this part of Zorg. Oldman started out in London, first pursuing piano as a kid, until he saw Malcolm McDowell's performance in the movie The Raging Moon, which made him want to go into acting. He started out doing plays all around England and the, and the British films he starred in, uh, Sid and Nancy and prick up your ears broke him into in with hollywood oldman moved to the u.s in the early 90s and his first big movie role was uh as lee harvey oswald and oliver stone's jfk that's a film i watched pretty recently and then his count dracula and coppola's bram stoker's dracula which was a big commercial hit obviously and his villain role in the film true romance oh my god if you haven't seen gary oldman in true romance <laughs> you are missing the motherfuck out bro it is it is that definitely put him down it was like oh he is the bombest i mean i don't he might be the greatest character actor be like him he's maybe daniel day he's up there dude he is so good in everything i love him so much it's such a weird career where like there's just like did did total degenerates that come up to him for true romance (laughs) and also like actual nine-year-olds because he was in harry potter (laughs) so besson said it took some time to get the voice of the character because he's so extreme zorg so finally he proposed this sort of half texan accent and it was very funny and i found an old behind the scenes special and gary oldman explicitly states that as was chronologically appropriate at the time he based the accent on none other than fucking Ross Perot <laughs> because he was shocked that this like weird, like energetic kind of dumb Texan guy could like just buy his way into a position of like leadership and prominence. And that's what like was villainous to him. Also, it's a real funny voice. Can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish? <laughs> it's a fun villain voice. It's like you don't get that kind of villain voice, especially in a sci-fi film, right? 
The yeah. sci-fi villain voice just never is that. And I feel like that was almost exactly why they went in that direction. Um, then there's Jamie Foxx and Chris Tucker up for the role of Ruby. Uh, and the essentially Tucker. Well, that's wins. not who was originally up for the role. Who? Who was? Mel None Gibson? other than the purple one. Prince. Yeah. Oh, God. How could I forget that Prince was uh, up for the role? Um, the role was written for Prince. Uh, like, Luc Besson really wanted him to be this pansexual, pangalactic super rock star. And according to legend, uh, Prince was upset by the designs presented by Gautier for the costume and thought it was too out there and too effeminate for Prince. Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying? Prince looked at these costumes and was like, ah, that's a little much. Yeah. Apparently it was also an issue getting his schedules correct uh, because he was on a like years long world tour at the time. And apparently it was the type of dude to be like, all right, we'll meet here at this time and then show up like three hours later. And they were just like, we can't work with that. We have to have someone who's going to show up and do the job. So Besson then meets with Jamie Foxx and Chris Tucker on the same day. He ends up going with Tucker because Tucker's just much thinner, much more fragile, which led to a more comedic look in Besson's opinion. I know that I know Besson said that, but like I was Chris Tucker is in incredible shape in this movie. Yes. Like not a lot of people could pull off those outfits. Like he is fit in this movie. Pull off those I outfits say this. and pull off that breath control, pull off that, <laughs> it, that energy, that ceaseless energy is insane. That it just seems like he's doing like acrobatics on the screen. Mm. It's really, really, uh, really amazing. So T Chris Tucker grows up in Georgia. He's one of six children in the home and quickly found humor, helped him stand out there and at school. He moves to L.A. after high school to pursue comedy and acting and regularly performed at Deaf Comedy Jam while making his cinematic debut in House Party 3. And then, of course, becomes incredibly well known uh, as his turn with Ice Cube in the movie Friday. You got knocked the fuck out and was just 26 when he did Fifth Element. So and speaking of Fifth Element, he was so out of his element. Chris Tucker said, I remember going to London for the fitting, then showing me all the clothes for my part. And I was like, woof, this is a deep, deep character. Luke is talking in French and he's talking in English about what he wanted with the clothes and the hair. Then I think he wanted some lipstick. And I was like, whoa, man. I'm this young kid, really scared. Like, I don't know if I could do this, but all that stuff really helped me get into character. <laughs> and I just loved how he just said, fuck it, let's just do this thing. I mean, I clearly so, so foreign from, in every way, from what he was used to. While we're talking about casting, Holden, I got to drop in another weird fact that I don't know when else to uh, add to the conversation. So this is Secret Fact, Jake style. Shh, uncredited in it's the movie. A secret fact. Shh, shh, shh. Uncredited in the movie as the voice of Bruce Willis's handler, affectionately known as Finger, is none other than Vin Diesel, who did the role uncredited. Uh, it's a blink and you'll miss it appearance, but as Bruce Willis is talking on the phone, you can hear the distinct voice of Pitch Black and Saving Private Ryan's own Vin Diesel as he talks about how. Uh, you know, he's in serious trouble. And also, that sounds like Bruce Willis met a cool hot chick. Secret facts are now over. <laughs> uh, here's a fun little quote from Besson that I think really sums up how ridiculous this movie is to be a Hollywood thing. When I started this film, I knew I had a 50% chance that after this, I will not be the, in the movie business. You cannot write a sci-fi that is funny, first of all. Made in France with Jean-Paul Gaultier, 
and the hero is a woman. And then, you know what? She speaks a language no one understands. When you start that way, why not take all the risks? Another fun risk I love is is the insanity that is the main, the protagonist and the villain, like, never actually meeting in person or fighting each other. There is a single shot where Bruce Willis exits the uh, lobby where the big shootout scene happens just as Gary Oldman enters. But, yes, the... First, well, actually, the main antagonist, as I've established, is the big angry space testicle, but it's working <laughs> through Gary Oldman's Yeah, character. yeah. And they just briefly appear in the same shot as one is leaving and one is entering. But otherwise, the two do not even really understand that the other one exists. So, as mentioned before, the costumes are all do- designed by French haute couture uh, designer Jean-Paul Gaultier. Uh, of course, Jake and I, we are well steeped in the history of French fashion, that is one of he our specialties. He made Madonna's funky bra. He Remember that, that pointy bra? bra? He made that. He made the the funky bra from the 90s <laughs> or 80s. What? Who knows at this point, Jake? There's no way to tell. Uh, he had no formal training. It was hired by Pierre Cardin as an assistant based on sketches that he sent him from a very young age. And his own first collection was released in 1976. He did, yeah, he did costumes for Marilyn Manson, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Nicki Minaj, many, many more. And it was just unbelievable the work he put into this this film. He created over a thousand wild costumes for the film. He vetted every single performer, including the extras for his designs. The famous bondage dress was based on previous underwear as outerwear collections the Gautier had done in the past. Jovovich said, um, yeah, Jov- this is the quote you mentioned before. Jovovich said, listen, if there was ever a time to feel comfortable wearing bandages, it's when you're 19 and in the best physical shape of your life. Gaultier weirdly referred to his workplace as the bathroom and would constantly be telling people to get out of his bathroom. And he just worked feverishly. And I, I, I thought I saw a quote somewhere that I wish I'd put down where like for a given fashion show, you're maybe doing like 100 looks, maybe tops. And so he did a thousand for this one movie and in such a small space of time and everything stands out so strongly. It's really a, a, a marvel. His level of involvement was so exact that uh, for the opera scene, which is one of the biggest showcases of Gautier's work in the uh, movie, um, he actually went on set and one by one adjusted the extras costumes and made last minute alterations just so they would look perfect for his vision of what the future fashion would look like. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, he he just specifically needed everyone to fit the look and, and vetted everyone. It's kind of incredible. So either way, uh, getting on to the filming, Besson wanted to film in France. Regrettably, he had to move the production to London and because they could not find a suitable facility there. They instead opted for Pinewood Studios, where they inhabited seven sound stages. The opera scene actually, however, was filmed at the Royal Opera House. And uh, Besson kept Jovovich away from Bruce Willis for the most part to get a genuine reaction from him when she falls into the taxi, which was shot with two cameras just to get it right there in that moment. Uh, So much of the charm of this movie is the intimacy that uh, Besson kind of uh, fomented 
with his actors, because unlike a lot of directors, uh, especially on this movie, Besson was always behind the camera, looking directly through the eyepiece, like basically a foot away from anything that was happening. And so he was working with the actors, making sure that they were delivering the performances just right, making on the fly alterations, giving notes. Like when you see the behind the scenes footage for everything that's happening on screen, Besson is right fucking there in the middle of it. And so, um, the way that he worked with Mia Jojovich uh, on the divine language, you know, this this fake language that they ended up talking to each other about. And the way that uh, he would kind of just let the camera roll and make basically use Jojovich to surprise Bruce Willis. Uh, so many of these like charming little interactions between the two is because Bruce Willis had no idea what she was actually going to come up with. So like the multi-pass conversation and that initial like. Boom, boom, big boom, like is Bruce Willis's genuine like, uh, OK, sure. And just rolling with it in a very endearing way. Yeah, Will- Willis said that uh, by the time I had gotten to Paris, they were already kind of smitten with each other, referring to Luke and Mila. Producer Ian Smith said Luke is a very active guy and he's passionate and all that and, and all that entails. Uh, so we didn't find the relationship that surprising at all. It meant that the performance Mila gave was invested with the love, if you like, that they had. Besson and Jovovich were married in 1997, I believe the year the movie came out, and they were divorced by 1999. How many marriages is that? I didn't, I should have looked that up, how many marriages this guy's had, because he's already, what, this is his third marriage by this point? It's like... I mean, it will have been his third marriage. Again, he is actively... It's so scummy because, like, his wife is literally on set right. for this movie. His vastly younger wife that he probably also gave the old razzle-dazzle with made-up languages and, <laughs> you know, intensity and weird, like, off, uh, you know, out-of-comfort-zone rehearsals. And he's just doing the same thing to another woman, like, right in front of her. It's got to suck. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, So speaking of Maywen. Uh, in the opera scene, the op- the piece of music in the opera scene has like become almost larger than life in the popular culture. Uh-huh. Um, the uh, you know it's paired with this incredibly kinetic, cool action girl fight sequence with the Mangalorians, not the Mandalorians. This movie's different; they're Mangalorians. <laughs> but I just i I can't not take advantage of the fact that I have a resource living in my own home. Uh, that I, I how dare the rest you refer to your your, your <laughs> other half a, as a resource? 
She is my partner. She is my lover. She is my one and only true love. And yes, for the purposes of podcasting, she is a resource and I will take advantage of it. Uh, I'm sorry. I just need to. Hey, hey, hey Marie. Hey, can you you get over here? Yeah. Yes. Uh, While she's getting over here, Mary, can you play a little bit of the opera piece that uh, is from, I believe it's just called the diva dance in popular circles. How you doing? Hi. So on YouTube, there's so many videos of people from across the world trying to do this piece of music in real life, which is uh, supposed to be, it's supposed to be, quote unquote, this impossible piece of music. Like literally the opera, like when it breaks down into the dance portion is actually just cut and, you know, uh, resampled to actually pull off these notes. What is actually happening from a musical perspective in this scene? So, uh, so do you want to know about the opera itself? Because actually, listening to you explain it, it's a little on the nose, kind of perfect. Um, the uh, the aria itself is called Il Dolce Suono, which means the sweet sound, and it uh, is in the opera Lucia di Lammermoor by Donizetti, which is an example of bel canto opera. Bel canto opera <laughs> is basically like written so that like coloratura high fast sopranos can show off. So the selection of this particular piece of music is interesting because it's to show off the diva, right? But in this aria, it's Lucia's mad scene. And it happens right after she murders her husband, who she did not want to be married to. (laughs) (laughs) So she comes out drenched in blood and sings this song, which is kind of amazing. Um, And so the beginning part of the aria is as it's sung in the opera. And then the end part when most sopranos like take liberties and show off and do cadenzas and all of this stuff. I know what a cadenza is. Right. That's when the, uh, the diva in the movie breaks into her like pop part, like doing all the crazy notes Mm -hmm. and musically. Yes. You can hit all those notes, but not that fast and not in that order. (laughs) (laughs) So, but like you told me something really interesting though. And that's like from a standard difficulty perspective, the actual unedited opera is like harder. Oh, the beginning part is so hard. Absolutely. Like, like those, what's happening there? Those like beautiful legato lines as she's singing, like the the portamentos as she's like easing up into it. Like you're gonna is, have to like what is an example of a portamento? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, that's when it. No, it's fine. When you're moving from one note and it kind of slides and you hit all the notes in the middle, a little bit like. That's like a portamento (laughs) as you like move from one note to another. So, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the beginning part of that. I'm not a color tour soprano, so like I cannot give you an example of that, but yes. So it's like a very difficult song from like a expressive singing part when it's that slow part. And then you do all the show offy stuff in the end. And that is also incredibly difficult. And my love. Yes. My queen. Yeah. In confidence, you told me something. Okay, fine. So, 
When did this movie come out? 1997. Yeah, okay. So uh, I went to opera school and uh, I graduated in 2008. And my drunk party trick was doing the the diva dance from the fifth element. <laughs> Which I would do as closely as I could to the the movie version. Not the beginning part. That's way too hard. But, <laughs> but the, the edited auto-tune part, I would do that. I would sing that at parties. <laughs> and my love. Yes. <laughs> my very embarrassed love. My the person in this world that if I truly was a good person, I would let you just accept that you don't want to do it. <laughs> but for the sake of podcast gold, could you attempt a little bit? I will sing the I can sing the beginning part and then I'll do the part at the end where it's not gonna match up, but I'll do whatever. But I'm gonna turn your mic away from me because I will break it. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> uh I think it starts like there. <laughs> and then that fast part. you so much that's thank amazing you. thank you marie Thanks. that's incredible oh my god what a fun break awesome surprise for me saying, but i hope it's okay it's very tell her uh, i'm very pleased right now everyone on earth is very <laughs> pleased with you right now discord could like barely handle it kept cutting out on discord it could like it did not understand this alien uh uh vocal but uh what i heard was incredible and uh, i'm so happy she did that for us uh, a couple more things about the concert scene since we're talking about it. Uh, first AD, Nick Carrera said, The diva scene, we basically shot it like a concert. The curtain came up and that was the, that was it. It was a bit jaw-dropping, I have to say. The first moment when that voice comes out, that first note, I'd not seen the outfit or the choreography. And to witness it uh, for the first time was absolute goosebumps. And they purposely hid all of the actors away from everybody, uh, away, or I'm sorry, away from Diva, uh, played by Maywin, uh, uh, Maywin, not Maywin. I feel like Maywin <laughs> sounds a little wrong. Maywin, Besco, um, and the, she wore 14-inch stilts and a skin-tight foam and latex dress, which was made in one single piece with no seams. And yeah. No seams. Do you understand what a torture that must have been? Uh, Supposedly another big surprise uh, built into the shooting by Besson was that the audience had no inclination of what they were about to see. So the look of like awe and like kind of uh, intensity that the audience is giving her is like real because on set people were like, holy shit. Uh, She was also supposed to have a big set of CGI butterfly wings shoot out of her when the like breakdown happens. Mm. But like, the performance was just good enough that they were like, there's no need to break it down. Yeah, yeah. This scene, though, uh, almost was didn't happen because there was a accident <laughs> where the, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, well, this accor- is wild. I was about to talk According about According to associate producer John Amicarella, uh, they were flying the negatives to California, to the effects house, and they got a call from LAX 
and they were escorted into a little room where they were presented with multiple trash cans of film negative that had fallen out of the airplane and onto the tarmac, onto the tarmac and had been run over by a forklift. And that was the footage from the diva scene. <laughs> and miraculously, they were able to salvage it, but they almost completely lost specifically that whole thing, which was such a spontaneous unreplicatable like <laughs> scenario in the filming the iconic scene from the entire movie couple more little things about the filming before we get into the special effects uh, chris tucker said that he and Mil- mila jovovich got along great hung out a lot on and off set because he was very homesick uh <laughs> tucker said i was a little afraid to talk to bruce too much i was like damn it's bruce willis i didn't want to mess it anything up up anything and get fired so whenever he said something i just tried to answer real quick and move on but he was really cool willis seemed to be very focused on the work and not as much on the play as the others and had demi moore on set a lot and uh, jobovich referred to her as quote rad and also wish she would babysit for their kids sometimes during shooting and really loved hanging out with them uh and also it just seemed like everybody had a great time on set, like I mentioned before. At the end, Bruce Willis, who's generally known to be like difficult on sets, always referred to it as a great time uh, that he had in his life doing that shoot, and that he even threw a party for everybody at the end, playing jazz music for them. Like he was like really First of all, not Bruce, Bruce Willis does not need an excuse to break out the jazz harmonica. He lives yeah, for yeah, that yeah. shit. He loves that shit. He, I swear, he became famous just so he could bust out jazz harmonica <laughs> and have no one call him out on it. Um, and also, Besson was kind of like Kubrick, and that he would do tons and tons of takes in order to get that weird take out of his actors. Like that was his kind of thing. Like we're talking dozens and dozens of takes at times, and that could be very trying for people. Sounds like a nightmare, but I get it. It's like you you give your initial instinct performance, and then after a while, you sort of get numb to it, and then after a while, something interesting comes out. And I do think that is an approach. Well, it's like I said. He was right there behind the camera, right in their face, so he could, like, tweak and work with and, like, just keep pressing on the actor until he got exactly what he wanted. Nowadays, uh, Besson says filming was a nightmare because of the sheer amount of practical effects and all the things they had to work around with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. I think the actors maybe had, and, and Gautier and all them, but I think maybe had more more fun than Besson per se. But either way, um, there were three different teams that handled the special effects in the film. Nick Alder was in charge of the mechanical and pyrotechnical effects. He started out as a camera operator who switched to effects after eight years in the biz. And he worked on movies like The Empire Strikes Back, The Princess Bride, Braveheart, and Hellboy. I mean, he is like the du- one of the dudes. You mentioned pyrotechnics, and it should be said that um, the grenade, that spiky grenade explosion during the big lobby fight sequence... Mm was at the time the largest indoor explosion ever filmed oh, wow. um, on an enclosed set. And honestly, if you if you watch the movie now, like that grenade goes off and like a little party just goes like, holy, holy shit. Like, because <laughs> it, it's very rare that you see like that violent of a real explosion yeah. in movies anymore, especially it's and what's clearly an indoor soundstage. Nick Dudman helmed the creature effects team. He comes out of Britain and he did makeup effects and animatronic effects in all the Harry Potter films. Dudman said, we had a whole team looking after the aliens, people with electric fans, pumping air, making sure their fluid levels were kept up, and those heads came off between takes. The Mangalores, not the Mandalores, couldn't see out because of their masks. We had to fit each one with a camera, a monitor, and a TV screen inside with links to my crew who literally went walk, walk forward, 
Shuffle, shuffle. For God's sake, stop! (laughs) Um, Mark Stetson headed the visual uh, effects team, and he got an Oscar for his work on Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, He, yeah, and uh, the visual effects production company Digital Domain was also hired. They did over 100 films, including Titanic and Armageddon. They've done everything. So Stetson is really a fascinating guy uh, because... He was, you know, he's part of this generation that, like, kind of started work uh, with Industrial Light and Magic. He worked on the Star Wars movies and did all these insane revolutionary technological jumps in how practical effects are shot. And one of the things that I think really makes this movie stand out is this is one of the this is the apex of, like, composite, matte, practical effects, miniature filmmaking before the CGI kind of took over. Um, for example, if the spaceships in this movie look so good, they look incredible uh, to the point where a few shots, they use like a CGI spaceship, like the shot of when the shuttle is kind of leaving New York City and it looks really like PlayStation 2 graphics level. Like it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And the thing is Stetson uh, helped use this technique that was uh, won an Oscar for Apollo 13, where the spaceships were shot with a uh, phosphorescent background, and then a UV lamp was blasting the object that they're trying to film, and that created a perfect matte mask of where the shadow, like, where the screen wouldn't phosphoresce. Like, uh, you know those Nickelodeon, like, flash screens from the 90s? Mm Mm-hmm. Or like one of those glow-in-the-dark things where like you hit the flash and then your shadow stays up? Yeah. So using like that kind of technology, they managed to shoot the spaceships with a perfect cutout that they could then color mask with like way greater accuracy than they could do previously. So many other things on how like the film speed was done, what grain of film they could do. Like basically the entire process of making cool spaceships look realistic on a movie using optical effects and uh, models was the height it would ever be for this movie. And pretty much after that, it was back to PlayStation 2 graphics. <laughs> and only now has it kind of like reached that same level of fidelity. Well, yeah, and I think that's what, you know, going back to Lord of the Rings, what was so, I think the perfect little mix there was that you had so much practical mix with so much, so many visual effects and things like that mixed with the CGI. Obviously the CGI is not as prominent here, but I... That's why also, though, you go back to a film like this as opposed to some of those other movies you mentioned that don't quite hold up as much. And you do always appreciate the practicality of the effects. The New York set was done in, quote unquote, bigature, Mm -hmm. which is uh, they were shot like miniature sets, but the actual miniatures were bigger than human beings. Uh, The Lord of the Rings did a lot of these kind of effects. Yeah. But like uh, so much of that New York City scape was built in real life. An article on uh, American Cinematographer magazine uh, actually talks about the city set, and it says that um, the thing you have to realize is that a Frenchman looks at Manhattan and sees a completely different city structure than what he's used to from classical European cities. Unlike Paris or London, New York doesn't have curves or T-intersections. A European looking at New York City is overwhelmed by the grid. And that's a quote from Mark Stetson talking about, like, what made that New York uh, set look just so surreal. That's very cool. 
Mm. Uh, all right, on to the soundtrack. It was scored by Eric Serra, a French composer who met Luc Besson in the early 80s and did the score for his first film, Le Dernier Combat, and went on to score, I'm sure I, oh God, maybe I did it right, but I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong. But either way, he went on to do the score Every Besson film after that, he also did the score for GoldenEye, which is credited as having a more modern avant-garde soundtrack than previous Bond films. Some loved it, some didn't like it, but uh, either way, it's how it went down. I loved GoldenEye. Oh my goodness. I had GoldenEye fever. R.I.P. that space telescope that they filmed it on that <laughs> collapsed recently. Oh and God, not- that's <laughs> the one that collapsed? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> After, oh, that breaks my heart. He he is credited on some films, including The Fifth Element, as uh, RxRA, which is the French pronunciation pronunciation of his name, Eric uh, Eric Sera Eric Sera Yeah, that's how it goes. He melds a lot of different sounds together, such as the reggae piece when the fight uh, the flight is preparing to launch, and hula music heard as the passengers arrive in Flostan. So again, like. Taking something, you know, taking a traditional soundtrack and putting all these modern influences into it and mixing it up, stirring up the pot really goes well with the visuals, with the costume design, with the story, weird story stuff. Um, The fifth element is love, by the way. Sorry. Spoiler alerts. Uh, Either Uh, way. Turns out it was Captain Planet rules. (laughs) Uh, Earth, wind, water, fire and love. So Go I wish I could have been at this. The film debuts at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival. To It was a huge affair. There was a live performance of a futuristic ballet. There was a fashion show by Jean-Paul Gaultier. And, of, co- of course, fireworks. The coolest thing to me is everyone got a Fifth Element Swatch watch, which was used <laughs> as their ticket entry. I looked them up. You this could actually, is so European. I know, right? You can find them online, uh, by the way. They, they, they do sell, they, they, there are vendors selling them. The film performed pretty poorly in the U.S., uh, which I would expect. If, if you were to sit me down and show me this film, I'm like, how did this do in the box office in 1997? I'd be like, probably not the best. I was so shallow and fragile in my masculinity yeah. when I was like 12 years old 100%, when this movie came out. 100%. That like, just seeing Bruce Willis with like an open back tank top. Yeah, or like... It would have been enough for me to be like, I don't know about or this. Or like Ruby, just Ruby's whole character and all of those costumes. Like, it definitely was... Totally threw me off, I, I think, as uh, much younger, and, and now I think it's cool as shit. But either way, it goes does very well, of course, abroad, and ends up becoming a box office success with 75% of the $264 million it made uh, coming from places outside of the U.S. It eventually gains that cult status in America. A real go-to film for a, uh, uh, an afternoon HBO pick. The phrasing I heard over and over again when I went like diving onto YouTube and like trying to find like video essays and people talking about this movie was that it was the kind of movie that you would always find yourself just like glued into. It would just come up and at any point in the movie, if you if your remote landed on it, you were there. Yeah. You were just like gonna you were just stuck. You had to see where this right. It's so visually just stunning and, and wild that yeah, you'd be kind of mesmerized by it and then be like, what is happening? And then and then I'd be like, what the fuck is even going on? In this movie, but either way, um, yeah, I just have a couple of wrap-up quotes. Do you have any more uh, factoids, secret facts, or anything of that nature before we close uh, it out? Shout out, uh, R.I.P. Uh, Tiny Lister for being the coolest black president before Morgan yeah. Freeman ever Yeah, and by the way, be. that was a risk back then, weirdly enough. Yeah. He, he Luke Besson talked about how he purposely, he was like, I want a black president. And, and people were like, I, you probably shouldn't do that. That's unheard of, <laughs> or whatever, which is insane. Um, and he was like, yeah, that's so I'm definitely going to do that then. And uh, yeah, shout outs to him for sure. 
Um, there were uh, just things about how the movie was shot. Uh, the fact that there were so many practical sets uh, that had to be completely built because Besson had this penchant for these like very low camera angles that make it seem much more personal and much more like kind of lived in than even Star Wars, which kind of, uh, you know, really relies on a lot of like grand wide shots. Like it was very a lot of the cameras really up in these people's faces um, tons of like interesting lighting decisions. The Mangalores are always lit from above uh, to kind of highlight their kind of dark, evil shadowiness. Just, yeah, just all these interesting little decisions that really stick out in the greater realm of the sci-fi canon. A hundred percent. Here's a couple of quotes from, from me that I really appreciated. Jovovich said, this was still the 90s. I guess you could say that was one of the last hurrahs of epic filmmaking in that sense. To be able to rehearse for four months and then to film for six months, that's unheard of today, unless it's like a James Cameron film. Associate producer John Amicarella said, It was still a system that fostered creative values. It was still an era where features were features by definition, and we didn't have all the format competition that you have now. We have vastly different challenges today. And I think that that speaks a lot towards how you can't just make a standalone big sci-fi blockbuster without the intention of sequelizing it or building a franchise out of it in some way or having merch or whatever it is. And we, I do, I do miss that a bit in modern uh, Hollywood cinema for sure. I mean, there's, well, I, I honestly, I'm thinking of uh, kind of the spiritual successors to these movies, which is uh, a uh, Valerian and the city of a thousand planets, Mm. which, relied much more on CG and kind of Besson uh, working with this, the actual uh, inspirations for the fifth element. And it kind of like being a little bit of a mess without like those, uh, A, the limitations of practical effects and just like even having, being a younger, hungrier artist that knew he had to make a hit. Yeah. Uh, The other one that I think of all the time when I think of fifth element is one of my, one of the weirdest, like, I, it's so bad that, like, I can't help but love it, but uh, the Wachowski is Jupiter Ascending, is super lush and super influenced by all these European sci-fi tropes. And it's also kind of a mess in terms of pacing and weird characterizations and all the things that, like, make this movie stand out. But again, there's just something a little too artificial about it, something too, uh, that you know, just doesn't, it just couldn't hit the same way that Fifth Element did. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's really a marvel, and I'm glad we finally got to do an episode on it. Jake, I think we've just about done it. The Fifth Element is love. I love you, Jake, or whatever. I water you, Holden. (laughs) um, It's also an element. It also counts. (laughs) Whatever. You're avoiding it. You're avoiding our love, Jake. You're avoiding it right now. If I had four magical stones that could help you save the world, I would let you reach into my guts and pull it out of my blue entrance. You had me at if I had four magical <laughs> stones. By the way, we didn't even talk about how um, the 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 quote unquote like riddles in the movie are so obvious and literal. There's this there's one shot in the movie that I think is so funny because like uh, the diva is like you have to take the stones out of me, and Bruce Willis like for a sec they do a shot of him being like. What could that mean? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Either way, thank you so much for joining us for our... Oh, also, hold in. You know what? No, we got to talk about this. Okay. Uh, when 
Fucking Lilu has her mental breakdown because she gets to the letter W in space oh, yeah. Wikipedia. How did we not bring this up at any point? It's such a glaring plot point that it's so upsetting. But like she gets to the letter, she throughout the movie she's reading space Wikipedia to try and understand humanity. And when she gets to the letter W, she gets like a million different film reels about all the wars in the history of humanity. And she's like, "Oh my God! Oh, humanity's so evil! I can't! It's so much pain! I'm I can't deal with it." But like, if you made it to W on space Wikipedia, you would have gotten like genocide, atrocities, Geneva Conventions that. Vi- Vietnam, like all the wars in the war article would have been there. She would have like, what's, what's, how do you just, just fuck it. Just America, just the America article would be enough for you to be like, fuck humanity is weird. <laughs> um, all right. Either way. Thank you for joining and, us. Uh, America's the letter a at, at letter a, she would have been like, fuck this species um either way thank you for joining us for the fifth element and uh for uh thank you for listening to our little show uh you can catch us more if you want some more bonus content five dollars a month over at patreon patreon.com forward slash whizbrew we have uh weekly bonus episodes and for 15 dollars, we do that sunday study session on our discord so uh hey check it out if you want Either way, thank you so much for listening. You can catch me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I stream Monday, Tuesday, Friday nights. It's always a blast, and uh, we always love having people come on and say hello who listen to the podcast. Jake! Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung, and hopefully I'll have another thing to plug soon. So <laughs> keep your ears peeled for that. <laughs> New plugs, 2021. <laughs> All right, have a go at everybody, and always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.